the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 709. I'm Jim McDowell, your host. We're going to be talking about the race in Malaysia, previewing the race in Valencia. And to do all that, I'm going to need help. So I have to have Richard Jow with me, who is coming to us from the merry old England. Across the pond, as we say here in the States. Rich, how's the things tonight? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Jim. Nice to see you again. We've been away for a little bit longer than we intended, but again, as usual, work <laughs> and Annoying things like that intervened rather, but we're in the finishing yes. straight. So looking forward to just having a quick recap on Sepang, which I don't think it's going to take us too long, isn't it? There are a few ah, headlines. That's us, right. Yeah. Two headline mm-hmm. things, but uh, no doubt we'll chunter on for about three hours. But uh, And then a quick uh, chat about Valencia and a couple of predictions, which will be fun. Uh, yeah, so let's get going. Yeah. All right. So uh, first of all, let's just get into, as a, as, a, as a matter of record, we are doing this on November the 2nd. So just to give you a frame of reference of where we are, again, apologies for being late. Uh, Rich and I, again, had all kinds of problems with work and everything else. But let's jump into the news real quick before we get to it. So the only thing I found from MotoGP, a couple of things from MotoGP. One, this was tweeted by Matt Oxley. It's a rumor. If it's true, this is going to be really cool. If it's not, well, it's just going to be put to the side as a rumor. But the question is, is KTM buying MV Augusta? Now, according to Matt Oxley and the and the link that he had in his tweet, the deal is supposed to close in 2023 with KTM taking full ownership of the iconic Italian brand. And then they want to bring the iconic brand back to MotoGP in 2024. We know there's a grid slot open because Suzuki does not have that grid slot, and it's supposed to be for factory teams. According to Carmela Espolita, this seems to fit the bill. You'd have You already have... In Moto3, you have a KTM, you have a Husqvarna, you have a Gas Gas. Why not have a MotoGP, a KTM, a Gas Gas? And, oh, and by the way, how about an MV Augusta just for fun? Hmm. The trouble is, it's a KTM, isn't it? <laughs> I mean... Right, yeah, but <laughs> are you complaining about the number of Ducatis on the grid? Uh, well, I think it's problematical but in some respects. I guess we might get into talking about that uh, in a little bit. But yeah, I mean, okay... It's, it's an absolutely iconic name, isn't it? I mean, mm. Agostini, Augusta, MV Augusta. I mean, wow, it's 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 a name of such romance and history attached to it that it would be a massive coup for the championship to have that brand back in place again. But it's, it's a slightly odd one, actually, because I was watching the World Superbike round at uh, San Juan in Argentina, I think it was last weekend, and in the super sport class, as they still call it, I'm pretty sure there was an MV Augusta, sort of a, a new model running in that class. Well, they described it as a, a new model anyway. But um, so it's slightly odd that, you know, they might be developing new machinery in World Superbike and then suddenly KTM is swooping in to buy the, you know, the brand in its entirety. But, you know, it'd be pretty cool if they did, because, I mean, KTM have got money. And, you know, I think it, I don't think it's too contentious to say that one of the things that has blighted MV Augusta over the recent years, the last couple of decades, probably is lack of funding, so it would presumably solve that problem. But, yeah, I'm a little bit sort of ambivalent about the whole, all these different brands, but they're effectively all the same bike. It's it's a little bit of a marketing thing, really, isn't it? I mean, how, how cool would it be to see Envy Augusta in their own right coming to MotoGP? Okay, that's not going to happen in the current context of where that firm is. But, you know, it's it's a it's a cool news item, and if it happens, I mean, it's it's certainly good in terms of that name, reappearing so yeah uh, i mean it's got its merits but it's a bit dubious in terms of really what's behind it is my point 
Yeah, uh, I think this is just perhaps maybe KTM's way to have essentially six motorcycles on the grid. Yeah, six of twenty is a huge amount of. It's half of what Ducati's putting on the field, right? Mm. So that gives the U- Europeans essentially a voting block uh, against the Japanese if they want to, and they could easily sway whatever they want to do. Yeah, uh, you know, make the championship. Whatever, you know, we don't like the fact that we can't do our own electronics or whatever, take your pick. They could sway it, but uh, yeah, it's one of those things. It's going to be a clone of a KTM. If it comes, it's not going to be anything like what we think of for MV Agusta, but it is a brand that has been around. So, yeah, I mean, if they, at least if they retain some of the kind of red and gold color schemes, I mean, that, that would work for me uh, just on its own, but let's see what happens. But um, yeah, interesting news article. Anyway, it'd be very interesting to see if that actually does come off. Yep. If you want to read the article, guys, find Matt Oxley's Twitter feed and you will find it in there. Uh, where's John McPhee going for 2023? Anybody got any idea? I don't. <laughs> no. Uh, all we know for sure is that he's too old to be in Moto3 next year, which is kind of interesting in the context of what we're going to discuss in a moment uh, in terms of the Sepang yeah. race. But uh, I guess probably, or if I am going to guess, I would suspect it's going to be Supersport in the World Superbike paddock. I suppose Moto2 remains an option because unlike MotoGP, the, you know, the smaller classes tend to, the news sort of filters out and the, the rides get fully confirmed, you know, as you get into the off season up towards Christmas, I, I guess. So, I mean, I, I'm sure there's some sort of fairly frantic uh, door knocking going on from John McPhee and his camp to try and get him a Moto2 ride. And I think, you know, to be fair, he's won quite a few Moto3 races. He's got good pedigree. Um, but age is slightly against him in the context of the average age in all of these classes nowadays. So and there are a lot of people going across from the MotoGP paddock to the World Superbike paddock, be it, be it Supersport or World Superbike. So I think that's probably the more likely resting place for him. I don't know what you think, Jim. I was thinking he might show up in BSB. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't know the I don't know the inner workings of the series enough, but it seems to me like it'd be a big name that people recognize. So it seems like a a fit for me because for whatever reason, he doesn't seem to be wanted in the MotoGP paddock. Hey, if you want to travel Mm. the world, do super sport, world super sport. Great. Fantastic. Um, If you get the ride, great. Fantastic. But it just seems like, you know, uh, what what was he at Sepang? He was with his fiance. Yes. Yeah. I I don't think they were married yet. No, but they're they're due to get married. Yeah. Right. So do you want to travel the world with your, with your wife? Great. I I don't know. I just think it's a talent that's been overlooked for whatever reason. And uh I'd actually like to see him rock up in the, the middleweight class in the World Superbike paddock, actually, because there's some really interesting technical regulation stuff going on in that paddock, which is introducing quite a wide range of different bikes, configurations in terms of engines it, and stuff. And it's a really exciting category in actual fact. They're starting to go down the Moto America route. Aren't they? Right. Letting, yeah. yeah. We need to do that as an off season. We got to have a real review of World Superbike and changes and stuff that are going on. Yeah, so we'll save that. But... It's definitely the case, Jim, that uh, MotoGP paddock's loss is World Superbike paddock's gain. You know, there are a lot of people coming across. And whereas I think in the past, it was kind of seen as the place people that were almost ready to retire went for a couple of seasons. I think those days are well and truly gone. I mean, it is a truly competitive paddock with some really interesting machinery as well. And I think that, you know, the the good riders can earn some decent money in that paddock. So it would be a, a good place for John to arrive. Uh, I mean, the thing about British Superbikes or the BSB paddock, let's say, is that 
I mean, I might be wrong on this, but McPhee's been in Moto3 for a long, long time, and I seriously doubt he's ever really done much on the British scene at all. I think he was probably one of these kids that went across, you know, and competed in Spain predominantly in the earlier part of his career. And I just think that in no way am I suggesting that he wouldn't be up to the challenge or that it would be a fear factor thing, but I just think it would be such a big change for him as to be almost insurmountable. So I think probably, yeah, I think World Superbike Paddock is the likely and a good, would be a good place for him to go. Let's hope. We'll find out in a few weeks, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, one more bit of MotoGP news, but more just bike racing news in general. Hell, it's about autosport in general, to be honest with you. It's the sad passing of uh, Didi Matisitz, the founder of Red Bull, having mm. died on that Saturday night before the Malaysian Grand Prix. I did not know that he had any kind of health issue going. Mm. Uh, I know that he Likewise. hadn't been... I knew he I knew he hadn't been as prevalently in the you know Formula One paddock or in the MotoGP paddock. He usually would show up at the Austrian rounds. Now he didn't this year, uh for whatever reason. Don't know why, but it is sad that this person who was truly a lover of motorsport, and I mean any and all types of motorsport, yeah. and he has changed the sport tremendously. To think that before he entered Formula One, there was no junior driver development. Now everybody has a junior d- development team, basically. Think about what he's done for all of the motors, motor, two-wheeled motorsports, just riders that have Red Bull sponsorship, yeah. all the things that they've done to make uh, you have the Red Bull Extreme X Fighters and you have all that stuff that appeals to the people, the younger generations, and that flash, and it's all because um, Masasic took his money and put it where his mouth was. Absolutely. So, in, a, a, in a weird sort of parallel universe, Jim, you have to wonder, you know, that there's a world out there where tobacco sponsorship got banned, but the energy drink never got invented. And, you know, what would that motorsport <laughs> um, ecosystem look like? You know, yeah. okay, something else would probably come in to fill the gap. But when you think of the money that has, well, I say poured in, apologies for the pun, but it's, it, you know... <laughs> The money that has poured in from the drinks energies and Red Bull kicked that one off without a doubt, you know, and that that gave, you know, the license and the route in for the monsters and the rock stars and the the weird Leopard energy drink, which I don't have you ever seen a can of that for sale anywhere? Because I sure as hell haven't. No. Um, but anyway, it's apparently it's a drinks <laughs> a brand <laughs> somewhere. Um, but all of these firms, you know, really ride on the coattails of, as you say, Dietrich Massachusetts and, you know, the very sort of visionary way that he went about marketing that particular product that I, which i assume he invented but i don't know he, uh, to be fair he actually had quite a low profile didn't he really you didn't yes. see much of him so i really kind of liked that about him well not a flashy so, guy at all yeah so technically as i understand the red bull story i could be wrong he was in southeast asia for business something i'm not sure what he was at some place where the local truck drivers were drinking this crazy cocktail that kept them awake to which he begged, borrowed, stole the recipe for. Not mm-hmm. sure how he acquired it, <laughs> brought it back to Europe with it, brought it back to Europe with him, tweaked it for the European palate and called it Red Bull. Right. And the rest, as they say, is history. So, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, very sad news. In it's the sad news. But, but he leaves behind the company, you know, a gigantic, enormous 
company, a, a massive legacy in extreme sports, motorsports, all sorts of different uh, areas mm. of, of commerce as well. So, um, yeah, he, he, his sort of um, love of all of those things will live on for a long time, I'm very, very sure, which is good news. But as you say, Jim, many a rider owes their career uh, ultimately to that guy, and many have come out and said as much, which has been nice. Lots of tributes paid. Red Bull rookies, right? Yeah, all of it, <laughs> um, top, top to bottom, yeah. So one last thing about Red Bull. If you don't think there isn't money in energy drinks, think about this for one moment. He owns two Formula One teams. <laughs> And he owned them before there were budget caps. Uh, I can't get my head around how many little cans of that stuff. I, mean, I know they're not exactly cheap, but that is a yeah. hell of a lot of cans that you sell to generate the sort of money. I mean, I'd love to know. I have no idea what their sponsorship budget in an average year has been. But you, you've got to be into hundreds of millions, haven't you? Just in sponsorship, let alone anything else. So, I mean, it, it's mind-boggling, really. Yeah. If you If you look at it this way and you think about that it's a at the height of formula one it was roughly 400 million dollars to run a team before the for the cap yeah. so let's lose, well, let's the, cap, lose the cap for some people jim well <laughs> yes okay well, let's just use the before cap number of roughly 400 million how about that okay and you, so you figure at the time it's predominantly red bull sponsor on the car so let's assume that they're putting up two-thirds of that or let's just say a fourth. Let's make it easy. So they're putting they're you know putting up you know three hundred million. So go for think about that. Uh, and then there's still whatever they're doing for motorcycling, whatever events they're sponsoring, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I bet their marketing budget had to be close to half a billion dollars, if not more. Easily, yeah. And final thing to say, it's a real shame actually that the news of his passing corresponded with you know all of that nonsense in mm. formula one and you know the um personality vacuum which is the person that's in front of all of that and um taking formula one further down the drain hole than where it was already so yeah that was a shame but anyway in terms of two-wheel motorsport yeah much to much to praise the guy about yep rich why don't you take us through uh the world Superbike and bsb news and then we'll get to moto gp yeah just very very little on this so as i mentioned earlier on we had the racing in san juan in argentina a little while ago good races nothing sort of massively stand out to talk about the main point really is that uh, bautista barring some cataclysmic occurrence has this one in the bag there's two rounds to go they're going to be at mandalika uh, in indonesia and then finishing off at phillip island uh, in a few weeks time so yeah i think the only sort of slight sting in the tail with this one in world superbike and again it's something we won't dwell on too much now but definitely one for discussion in the off season jim is this whole thing around and a ride combined rider weight or rider and bike weights is is really sort of come to the fore as a quite a testy sort of argument that's brewing up in world superbike at the moment Quite a bit of criticism around the whole Bautista thing. Again, don't want to get into it too much here. We definitely want to talk about that off-season. Um, but I think there's probably a change likely to come there in terms of a sort of an, an average combined weight of rider and bike somehow. Um, mm. In what is a very... Us. It's such a heavily controlled formula in terms of technically, and yet there's this huge disparity around you know the whole rider side of things, which does create quite a big difference in performance. So I'm sure they're going to have to deal with that. Sorry, Jim, are you going to say something about that? I just think we this is something that we really need to get Scott Smart on 
yes. and have a, have a, have a very deep conversation because he is the technical guy. Yeah. You know, he's the guy writing the rules. So I think this would fit really well. So and in we terms just... of the rules, technically brilliant, mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant. As I say, very exciting things going on in World Superbike and, and particularly in World Super Sport. Um, but yeah, so we'll part that one. So nothing too much yep. to talk about from the Argentina round. And then just a very brief piece of BSB news. Uh, Tommy Bridewell, as we were speculating, and slightly surprisingly, um, Glenn Irwin as well, are now both confirmed to be riding in the PBM of the Paul Bird Motorsport Ducati squad in 2023. So Josh Brooks outgoing and uh, Tom Sykes outgoing. Looks like he's going back to World Superbike, probably, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago. So, yeah, that's BSB News. There'll be probably more rider announcements in, when is it, 20th of November. So there's a big motorcycle show in the UK, Motorcycle Live in Birmingham, which runs for a week. But on the first weekend, on the Sunday, which I think is the 20th, that's kind of the BSB day. So a lot of the riders are there and you tend to get announcements around who's going where. So we'll have a bit more to say perhaps about BSB. I'm assuming you're going to go. And I am indeed. I'm have going your on that microphone with you. Yes, I will be there. So it's uh, good show. I mean, it's, it's a general kind of road bike show, but they tend to have one day which is focused around the BSB stuff in particular. So that will be the 20th for people that are in the UK. I'm thinking of going. That'll be the day to go. So yeah. So that's kind of the news, Jim. That already took longer right. than I thought, but um, that's about it. So, <laughs> all right. Well, let's set the wayback machine and go back to Malaysia, so we can talk about what happened there, so we can set up for what's going to happen this coming weekend in uh, Valencia for the final round. So we'll start as always with the Moto Three class. Real quickly, you had Anshu, McPhee, Toba, Kelso, uh, Artigas, and Yamanaka in that first qualifying session. Really didn't think that Anchi or McPhee would be in there, but they were. They did, however, escape. So they actually, it was Yamanaka, Toba, Furusawa, and Kelso uh, that actually got through. So poor John McPhee didn't even make it out of there, surprisingly. And we had a contact warning for Anchi during qualifying. I, just, I really got to get my head around what a contact warning is because I don't <laughs> understand it, to be honest with you. So well, it's, it's the nanny state further creeping into all uh, aspects isn't it i'm afraid but uh, yeah yeah i know but in the second qualifying session halfway through it was sasaki faji and Rossio, your top three then garcia threw in a great lap but no he was beaten by Fagio, guevara garcia masia holgardo and Mino. they uh pretty much rattled him back in the pack there so Fagio would start from the pole though the racing for the moto three race was interesting there were some damp patches. You had the early morning rain. I think that interrupted uh, MotoGP warm-up that mm-hmm. morning. So the track was dry. It was declared a dry race, but there were a few patches of damp that was there. Guevara got a hell of a whole shot followed by Fagio. Uh, Mino and, Hel- and Helgardo, they bumped on the on the way down to the first turn. And uh, Mino was so super close to that pit wall. When that happened, I was thinking, wow, we're going to see a bump off the wall and come back in. And then it was going to be a helter skelter everywhere for all the other bikes and riders. But everybody held on to it, which I was glad to see. Uh, where um, Nepa, he had uh, this little crash at turn nine where he high sided himself. Uh, looks like the back broke loose. Was it on a damp patch? Don't really know. Was it the fact that the tire wasn't up to temperature yet? Not sure. Either way, he unloaded big time on this one. But everyone did everything in their power to miss him. Uh, and it was 
who I don't have it here in my notes, but uh, they went in. One of them went between the bike and him. I can't think who it was. One of the Japanese riders, I think. I don't remember who. It was definitely watching through the fingers moment. Mm. That one, one there on lap one. That's not good to see. And I, I think it was Nepa. There was I another think crash. It might have been the, well, there was another crash at the same corner a few laps later, but I think it was Nepa. I'm pretty sure he broke his tib and fib in that accident, Jim. I don't know if you got a note on that. I uh, don't have a note on that one. No, I do not. So we might not see him uh, in Valencia this weekend, which will tell us the answer to that one. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Garcia went back to the top after that. So it was Garcia, Masia, Faggia, uh, Marrero, Hogardo. Those five had a gap. And, of course, it was Sepang, so you didn't expect them to have a gap for long. And they didn't because everybody wound <laughs> them all right back in again. Uh, Munoz went down at turn nine. Uh, and then Suzuki lost the front end uh, as well. So it was like we sort of had a bit of crashing going on again. Is it the damn track? Is it the tires? Is it where where are we with this one? Is it just over exuberance because nobody everybody's got really nothing to lose in terms of racing? The the championship's been pretty much decided. Yeah. So I, I don't know what was going on there. Maybe a little loss of intelligence for these guys. Who knows? The heat might have got to them. Slightly <laughs> unusual to see Munoz uh crashing, but Suzuki yep. going down would hardly be classed as a massive surprise. I mean, he had a little purple patch midway through the season, didn't he? But yeah. of late, things have kind of gone wrong again. I don't remember Munoz really falling at all. No, I think that's probably his first I think it's off. his first one. He, he, he may season. have fallen in practice, but definitely not in a qualifying and not mm. in a race that I could think of to this point, Agreed. which is pretty impressive, especially for the kid having joined the series. I think he joined at Mugello. Well, and, and in, in view of the fact of the way he rides, I mean, he's not exactly yeah. out for a Sunday <laughs> stroll, is he? So, I mean, it's nope. full on with him. So that's, I think, I, yes, I mean, I think you're right, Jim. I think that's probably the first crash that he's had in a race all season. Yeah. Ah, oh, okay. So where are we getting down to here? Afaji assumed the lead and Guevara and Garcia kind of fell backwards a little bit. There was passing everywhere from, from like 14 to go to about five to go. Throw these guys in a blender, spit it back out. That's where they are. That's the kind of race that we see all the time in Moto3, especially on a track that has a long straightaway that everybody can use to draft. Then we got to the point where Rossi went down at turn one, going in there. Guevara was leaving, and he he gets into 15. He gets passed by Sasaki, who then hits, who he hits, and they go. For, he goes for a ride because Sasaki's trying to get by, and it knocks, it knocks Guevara off. He goes across the pit lane entrance and kind of rides the wet grass and misses the pit wall. Thank you. Because I had visions of the Nikki Hayden crash at Aragon circa 089. Somewhere. And then the Ducati. I, I think yeah. it's eight or nine, mm. maybe 10. Um, I can't remember the year, but I had visions of that going into that barrier and him going over said barrier. Yep. Uh, with the motorcycle staying on that side, that was pretty. That was pretty wild. Uh, of interest is this thing at this point. McPhee had the second pack, had brought them up. Now him and uh, it was McPhee and who else was the other? Two guys came from the second pack, and I don't have who the other one was. Uh, I think it was Diego uh, Marrero was kind of. I think in, yes, in, I think it might have been Marrero. Yep, might have been. The they are now only like one and one point one seconds back with like te- with like five to go. And essentially, at this point, it's all helter-skelter, again, because everybody's all over the place. Take your pick. The racing's amazing. McPhee is sort of now 
had tagged onto this bottom end of, end of it. And we finally get to the last lap. Now, it starts out with Garcia, Fazia, Masia, and McPhee at this beginning of that lap. Now, McPhee gets shuffled back on the on the run into turn one and whatnot. But we get back to turn 14. And Fazia pushes. I, I can't even really describe to you what really happens, but... Let's just say the first nine guys all go wide in turn 14, whether whether you decide that it's Fazia's fault or or it's Garcia's fault or whoever, take your pick. Or it was, you know, Guevara coming from behind that had everybody going way too deep into that turn. But they all go wide. They're nowhere near the racing line. But the only person who is is McPhee, who then carries that from turn nine all the way to the finish to win the race. Amazingly, which was yeah. everything happens at the end, and it was that one, and that is where it all went and went crazy. Uh, that's you know, from there it was just I don't know, pure pure chaos, right? Right, Rich. I mean, it's just how it goes. Uh, you so, can never really predict what's going to happen on the last lap of a Moto Three race, can you? No. And, uh, whilst I'm in absolutely no position to criticize John McPhee as a racer, if there is a kind of a a bit of a kind of what would you say a chink in his armor it's been perhaps that last little kind of tenth or so of killer instinct but in terms yeah. of this race that we're talking about he just put himself where he needed to be and when that opportunity arose he just he grabbed it and it was just a brilliant unbelievable and a, and i have to say a very popular win i suspect as well given i think it was this is you know that was the penultimate race of his Moto three career there's no coming back to moto three for him. that's a stupid rule i don't really like this upper age limit thing again probably not one for now but the guy's fast you know he's winning races let him race oh, it's just stupid but anyway part that but yeah just a, a a great last lap as usual yep so mcphee would win it sasaki's second garcia gets to the podium masia who like just show i think it's masia i think mcphee actually drugged masia with him from okay. the second pack to the yep. front pack i believe if i remember correctly uh, then Marrera, Fazia, Helgardo, Yamanaka, Ortella, Anchu, Artigas, Guevara, Bartolini, Mino, Fernandez, and um, that is the last man to get a point in that. Uh, don't really think that really changes too much in the in the championship standings uh, for who's for who's there and whatnot. No, I but, don't think anybody changed at all, did they? Yeah, I think it stayed where it was. Uh, Garcia did pull a little bit of a gap on Fazia. Because uh, he's got seven, eight points on him now, so mm-hmm. it's going to be a little. So you know, it's pretty much going to be. You could watch that race and see what's going on. I think uh, Sasaki's too far behind to actually move past Fazia. So the really the only battle here might be just Fazia versus Garcia for who's going to finish second in the championship. I'm going to put the money on the on. Well, I shouldn't preview this, but I'll put the money on the Gas Gas Twins finishing one two in this championship. Yeah, and I guess there's some pretty significant bonus money up for grabs. I mean, although it's all about who's the champ and that is the position that we know now, nevertheless, yep. third, third through 10th probably has some financial implications for the people in those battling for those positions. So, yeah, I'm, I'm nobody's going to be holding back on Sunday this weekend. That's that's for damn sure. No, not at all. Uh, anything else from Moto3 that we would like to discuss, Richard, that you have a note on that I did not get? 
No, I, I, for me, it was just, it. you know, it was a John McPhee thing, wasn't it? Just a very yeah. unexpected win from a very, very poor qualifying practice a uh, couple of days. I don't know what the problems were particularly. I, I'm sure it wasn't anything particularly to do with John. It was probably a setup thing or some bike troubles or whatever. But to come through the pack like that and then to sort of grab the win at the last turn on a crazy last lap was just, yeah, classic Moto3. Yeah, that's classic Moto3. Let's yeah. go to Moto2 where we don't have a championship decided yet. Although it was going to be possible. It just was how the math was going to work out. But let's talk about that once we get through qualifying quickly. There's not a whole lot that happens in qualifying in Moto2, guys. Just to give you a quick re, re, uh, quick rundown of what happened. In the first qualifying session was Vietti, who has seemingly lost the plot here completely. completely. I do not know what is up. Vietti was odds-on favorite to win this world championship at the beginning of the year it looked like he was just going to run off and make everybody look stupid yeah and we were going to have a typical moto two season of watching vietti just win 10 races or something like that and have the championship in the bag with five to go however now he's trying to come out of q2 every single time yeah. so again the plot has been lost and uh, roberts was in there as well as Salax and alcoba and della porta um, Robert Salak, Delaporta, and Antonelli would all go through and get into G- get into Q2. In Q2, uh, sorry, folks, there was nobody who was going to be faster than Ayagura. Ayagura had it wired. Every time that uh, Arbolino got close, he just simply went faster, and he looked good the whole way around. So Agura looked very good. Arbolino was very quick to be there in second, looking good, carrying his form from the previous race weekend at Phillip Island on as well then it was canet also looking at canet's a qualifier but we're not so sure that he's really a racer or doesn't seem to really have good results on it now he wasn't a fabulous moto three rider just in moto two he has not got that elusive win yet and not sure what he needs to do to get there because his qualifying is correct it seems like it's luck or circumstance that keeps him from being on the top step of the podium then it was dixon gonzalez fernandez chantra alcoba and Bobier rounding out the top of the qualifying session. So it was nice to see the American up there with the last couple of races uh, doing well. Now, the race. It's a battle between Fernandez and Ayagura. Those are the two guys battling for it. What you need to know is that if uh, Ayagura were to win and Fernandez was 13th or worse, the championship is Ayagura's with a round to go. So that's what's in play as the race starts. Take off, it's Arbolino, it's Ayagura, Dixon, Lopez, Gonzalez, and, and, and Fernandez. Chantra is down, and I had this how-did-that-happen moment because I couldn't figure out how Chantra had went down. He got help from Lopez, and then Acosta's bike hits Ayagura's bike, or sorry, not Ayagura's, hits Chantra's bike, and literally Acosta falls Acosta's bike, I should say. I was going to say Acosta, but it wasn't Acosta. It was Acosta's bike. Falls on top of Chantra, and they both go sliding off into the weeds, which was one of those did-that-happen moment for me, and another one of those, oh, my gosh, fingers and covering my eyes moments all simultaneously as everyone tried to sneak through there. And that that is the one part of the Sepang track that I am not very – happy with it seems to be okay with cars in formula one which is fine 
because you have a carbon fiber chassis around you and whatnot. But motorcycles on that flip-flop back, everybody's so tight at the very beginning and everybody squirts out of one to the other. And if you don't have the tires warm, you're going for a ride. But and it's also off camber. It's a downhill. It's a tricky little corner. Yes, yeah, it. I don't. I'm, yeah. Maybe it's not necessarily as off camber as I think it is, but it is downhill, and it does make that that corner incredibly um, tricky. Actually, Jim, as always, the TV cameras flatten the topography. That is actually quite steep there. I did go to the Formula One race at Sepang a few years. Back, oh, really? And I was surprised actually how far the track does actually drop away there, which you don't really get. Hmm. Um, so I think it helps to explain why you do see a lot of incidents there because you're sort of flipping from right to left and you're dropping downhill quite a bit as well. So, yeah, it's a tricky turn, that. Huh. I know there's, I, I know TV flattens it and I know that Sepang does have elevation and it's like enough elevation just to make you question whether you can hold the throttle on kind of a thing. Mm, yeah, It, it, it really yeah. is a very good track. Yes, you it know, is. Of, of, the mod- of the modern Tilka tracks, it's it's second only to Turkey. But topography is everything, right? And yeah. Turkey had the topography. Yeah. And the thing of it is, though, you had to design it for the topography. You had to take advantage of the topography. That's a whole other thing. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Moving on, moving on. <laughs> back to the We're race. in the weeds. Let's, let's not go there. Let's not try to. Let's try to pull. Let's try to roll this one back in. Uh, I think even Dixon was sort of in the mix of that little bout, little crash scenario, because uh, he was rubbing on people as well. It became a race quickly. I think of. Arbolino, Agura, Lopez, and Gonzalez, Dixon. It settled into those guys being at the front. Vietti went down. No one should be surprised by that because, as we said, Vietti's lost the plot. Again, it's just Arbolino versus Agura. Now, this is going to play out to where um, Acosta had a little crash, and he was down. He lost the front at 15, which is a tricky little corner unto itself because that's the last one on the circuit, correct, Rich? And, it ha- and that whole turn is off camber. Mm-hmm. And it used to, I know at one point it was really steep. Like on TV, you could watch Formula Car, Formula One cars go around it and see that the car was physically leaning to the outside. And then they reprofiled yeah. that again yeah. at some point, but it's still very off camber. And I think so part just, of the reason, Jim, why they reprofiled it actually was not to make it easier, but I think it was because it was so steep, the off camber, that it was causing flooding problems. Because mm. uh, so I think they tried to sort of flatten it and improve the drainage there a little bit. Because as we know, it, when it rains there, <laughs> it really rains and you just get a lot of water problem. So yeah, but it's a yeah tricky corner that. Uh, Iagura was uh, all all over Arbolino. I mean, Iagura was trying his damnedest, and he actually led. He finally got to the front to lead with about six laps to go. Uh, then Iagura went wide at turn one. So he had a, I think his pass was somewhere around that that fir, that 13, 14 section of the track. I think he might have done it right after that. It was a bold move by Agura to get by, but he couldn't. He was his own worst enemy and breaks too late going into one. Arbolino goes back, goes back by. The basically Fernandez is down in a battle with Dixon. Uh they're going at each other. There's there, he's down in about fifth or sixth. So there's a bit of space between Ayagura and wherever Fernandez is. It's not enough for Ayagura to win the championship where Fernandez is. But Ayagura is just says, okay, fine. I'm just going to just go for it. But the Dixon-Fernandez battle is crazy because Fernandez goes by at turn two. Then Fernan- then uh, Dixon goes back by. Then he goes back by again. And th- like th- It's a sequence of about three laps where those guys have the most intense battle. It looked Moto2-esque. 
or Moto 3-esque, sorry, because mm. these guys are just going at each other. And it's Dixon and Fernandez. It's like, whoa, <laughs> Adrian, what are you? It's the what are you doing moment for Adrian Fernandez. Like, let Dixon go. You don't need to ride this hard. You have a points lead coming in or a one and a half point lead. Okay, I get it. It's nothing. Yep. But in the grand scheme of schemes, Dixon wasn't going to – Dixon was not where you needed to fight. The fight was farther up the road because that was Agura, and you weren't there. So use the Rain, Wayne Rennie method and take the points that you have and go on because Agura had a setup that worked here. And I think Agura has been around this place a whole lot more than Fernandez has. Yeah. So take what you can, in my opinion, at this point. I even wrote my notes. Take what you can, Adrian, on there. But they just keep going – Back and forth at each other. Well, then Fernandez got by Dixon, or Dixon's by, and then Fernandez got passed by Gonzalez. Gonzalez looking good on that speed up. I mean, ever since Gonzalez has stepped on that bike, he's made that bike look real good. Sort of a la Fabio Quattraro-esque. Like, Quattraro was the only guy who could really ride the speed up at the time, and sort of Gonzalez is the only guy that can ride the Bosca Cora, which is a speed up. But then we get to the last lap. You have that weird look on your face, Rich. Gonzalez or Lopez? Gonzalez. Uh, you are right. I think it's Lopez. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Yeah. I got uh, Alonso, I got... Alonso Lopez is on the Bosque Skier, isn't he? Yeah. So, so, is, so, is, so is Gonzalez, though. Is that a speed up, is it? Because he's yeah, kind Lopez... of suddenly emerged, hasn't he? Because he's one of the uh, uh, no, 46 Gonzalez... riders. Yep. Sorry. Gonzalez is on a Kalex. Okay. It's Lopez and are on the uh, Aldegar. Aldegar is on the other one. That's yep. it. That's it. Sorry, that's but why I had was, a, that's why I had this confused yeah, look on my sorry. face. I'm thinking, is he on a different bike to the one I think he's on? <laughs> yeah, I've got that one messed up. That's my bad, people. I, I gotta apologize for that one. Uh, just too excited for what's going to happen here. Yeah, I mean, what happens? So you're, you're, you're on the last lap, and you have this Fernandez Gonzalez battle that's going on, and then Agura goes for it to pass Arbolino at turn nine, loses the front, slides out, done. He's on the ground. I. Who knows? Aguirre's trying to pick the bike back up. <laughs> Get what? Go ahead. Well, I tweeted out idiotic. I mean, I, I couldn't help it. I, I mean, because I was watching it live, as most people would have been, and I just, I was so incensed that, that he did that. I just thought mm-hmm. it was an act of absurd stupidity, given the circumstances. But I, I guess this leads us on to an interesting piece of uh, uh, listener feedback, it does. Jim. <laughs> it does. See it you does. reaching for your phone to find the email. Yep, so I, I didn't have it up on here, so I needed to to get this back. But we had a we had a message from Steve Steve Riling, and he he really brings this in. It's it's apropos for here, and he says, "Okay, his his title was why? <laughs> <laughs> lots of question marks. <laughs> lots yeah. of question marks. And he says, okay, I have a pretty simple question to those more experienced than me at racing." Why, oh, why do these guys not see their own inevitable crash? Sitting back on my couch, I can see a lot of crashes long before they actually happen. It gradually becomes more and more clear that a rider can't hold a particular corner much longer. You can see the control getting worse, and at the exact same time, you see the aggression increase. It's kind of depressing. When I watch, I feel like I'm riding with them, so I feel just a little sad because it's almost like I'm crashing too. Maybe, but just how is it? for me but why is it they don't see it coming when in, when inexperienced me on my couch absolutely knows nothing perhaps you guys have some ideas on this rich i'll let you start with your reply which i thought was brilliant i i couldn't disagree with anything you said but uh well i think i uh, i haven't got it right in front of me actually but i think to paraphrase what i said was 
these guys are just racers and they want to win uh, and yeah. all other considerations really go out of the window so that kind of logical part of the i mean not for everybody because i mean you said a minute ago jim wayne rainey great example of a guy that would play the play the averages i mean he was a serial winner on you know and a <laughs> one of the best ever um but on on a day when he couldn't win he would bag the points yep. you know he would take that pragmatic approach alan prost was very similar yes in mm-hmm. formula one whereas his sort of nemesis at the time his kind of kevin trance was at and senna Senna would rather crash into somebody than lose a position. So, you know, you always get these different approaches. And I've, up until Sepang, I would have said that Aigura was quite a thinking kind of a rider. Um, As Steve said, through much of that race, and certainly in the second half of that race, you were thinking he's going to crash. I mean, he's literally going to crash at any moment because he was having all sorts of front end moments. He took the lead as you said earlier on Jim and then ran wide in turn one whether that was a false neutral or what caused him to go wide we obviously we don't know but it was certainly over exuberance uh writ large across most of the laps that he completed uh, all up until the last one and I mean there's no other description for that person you know than a dive bomb really because he came from miles back and you just thought as soon as you saw them come into that corner you thought or I thought anyway He's going to take a lunge. and But he came in so shallow that there was only one outcome, I think, really. And it is the outcome that we saw. And I mean, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't give much away. And I don't think they sort of showed too much of him post-accident when he got back to the pit. So if they did, I'd, I'd probably turned off at that point. But most un i esque I would say, up until, or, or based on what we've seen up until now. And something that he will come to regret although we'll talk about the weather in a minute when we talk about Valencia coming up but I just have it in my mind that he perhaps thought this was his best chance to pretty much wrap it up I mean I don't again we didn't see what kind of pit signals he was getting and we didn't see or I didn't see you know the classic thing where you will see somebody on the pit wall either saying speed up or slow down (laughs) I would have thought most of them would have been telling him to back off a little bit and I would have been interested to have seen his pit board if they put up a second okay kind of message which if i'd been then and they didn't do that i think they absolutely should have done because he was going to take a pretty handsome points lead into valencia if he even if he'd finished second so uh, 14 points roughly yeah something like that i mean it was going to be a lot more of a comfortable weekend than he's now facing so anyway that's my take on it jim and so my reply to steve was very much i think you know, these racers guys are, just, are racers. They're racers and they just, you know, that logical part of the brain sometimes just gets disengaged and that's what can happen. Yep. Even Lynn was in on this one as well. And yes, I, Lynn, yeah. Lynn's, Lynn's comment, you know, Lynn's comment was great. And he's like, you know, this is, when you're riding, you don't know that you're degrading. It's easy. You can't. You're, you're, there's a whole lot more going on than you thinking about what you're doing, right? Yeah. I mean, you're thinking about how you're going to pass this guy and all this other stuff there. So, you know, hey, look, it's you know yeah you have this pattern but you're a racer and you believe honestly that you're going to fix it because you're not going to break his light the next time you're going to do it by a millimeter or whatever and everything's going to be okay when you do it that time right you have no other expectations so it doesn't always work always work out as well but i did love lynn's response to this as well me i went i went a different way it's like you guys had to me you guys had great points on this but the thing of it is to me it was like agura probably did not know where fernandez was I do not think they were putting on the board where Fernandez was. Now, if they did, I, you know, 
the the standard pit board that we know of in today's parlance is here's your lap time, here's your plus gap, here's your minus gap. Oh, and here's a G number. And the G is how big of a group are you in? Mm. That's really what these guys are getting. Now, if Fernandez had fallen, I guarantee you that the team would have put Fernandez out or 37 out, something like that on the board. Yeah. But they didn't. Now, again, we didn't see the boards. We don't know. But I speculating that he just didn't know about it. Now, it could be the fact that Ayagura is like, this is my best chance to win. Valencia is not my track. The weather there is probably going to be iffy, cold and rainy, potentially. I have not seen the forecast for this weekend, by the way. So he might have thought, hey, I got to do what I got to do to win right now. And so he went, he went pretty, he went deep. And the funny thing is, you talk about everybody seeing it. You know who saw it too? Arbolino. Arbolino, yeah. Because because when Arbolino saw him come from where he was, he knew he came from way back. And he just like kept breaking, just straight lined it because he knew what was going to happen and let it go and turned back underneath. So even Arbolino knew what was going to happen. But again, I agree, probably thought this was his best chance to get the maximum amount of points to make his weekend in Valencia that much better. I can't remember in the rain races we've had in Moto2, I don't think Iagur has done that well to my mem- to my memory. Well, he certainly didn't at Mategi. Uh, no, hang on. You know, he won in Mategi. In, in he won in Mategi. Didn't he? So, no, he, is a, he, he has, he, he does have good, he does, I mean, the Japanese riders tend to be pretty good in the wet. Cause yeah, so the Brits. Is, 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 yeah, exactly, because it rains a lot. So, I don't know. It's my final thing, things. Jim, is yeah. just that he'd had so many warnings through the race because he was, he looked a, a bit desperate and I'd be, I, yeah. I, we're not, we're not going to find out why. I'd be fascinated to find out you know, in the debrief, just what exactly he was thinking uh, besides wanting to win, which they all want to win. But it was just a curious performance from him. Uh, and as you say, Steve's email was great and we all had a bit of fun replying to that. That's what we love. Um, but he's really set himself a tough challenge this weekend, doesn't he? I mean, that's the net result of all of this and he will rue the day that he went for that move, I think. But yep. you never quite know. I mean, we don't, we can't second guess exactly what's going to happen in Valencia. I mean, things. Yep. What did Murray Walker say? Um, anything can happen in motorsport, and it usually does. So, I Correct. mean, classic wise words. <laughs> yeah. So, Arbolino would win the race, followed by Lopez. Dixon gets a podium, another podium. I mean, that's like yeah. three on the trot. I yeah, think. he's had a brilliant second half of the season. Yeah. Oh, and we we forgot to mention McPhee. He's the first, only the second rider ever went on three different manufacturers in Moto3. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that one. Sorry. I threw that one in there on you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about tangents. Anyhow, uh, Augusto Fernandez would then finish fourth, then Gonzalez, then Schroeder, Bobier. I think that might be his best finish ever in the class. Could be. Then Kinnett, Koba, Outiger is your top 10. The interesting thing is what all this does to the championship and that in that championship, you put Fernandez back on top and he has um, 221 points or 25 points. I think something close to that. Yeah, he has he has 251, sorry, 251 and a half, which gives him a 13 point lead over Iagura. Or sorry, gives him a no. Sorry, nine and a half points. Nine and a half. Yeah, uh, thirteen is where is well, how many points he cashed in for in Malaysia. Sorry, looking at the chart wrong, incorrect. And it's all between them because Kinnett's forty three points behind. 
So even 42 points behind Agura. It's a nine and a half point deficit. That's going to take some tricky math to figure out what it's going to take to actually win that one. Mm. But, you know, there's going to be tons of permutations. Although it does give me to have a chance to have that rant as I usually do, Rich. What's my bitch about Moto2 braces when the leaders fall off? Uh, no starter motor to get the yeah, thing going again. Motor. Yes, there that's we go. Right. <laughs> so, again, if, if, if you gave them a starter motor, it would be equal because every bike is the same. Iger could have flipped the starter, could have gotten back up. He would have finished behind Fernandez. But and maybe would they would have... He would have scored points. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I'm leaving that one for a whole other day. I've ridden that horse to death, and I'm not going there and again. Mm. I'll just make mention <laughs> of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's a good, fair, fair point, and it was a good example. I suppose some people might counter-argue that... No, don't fall fell, off. He fell off <laughs> in a, in a, a rash move let's call it let's be kind uh and so that was the penalty yeah you know? and my counter to you, to people that don't want to start a run on that i've raced super sport in a club and you had to have your starter motor on the bike that was a rule i've seen bikes crash and you go to start them and it takes a good two or three minutes to start it off of the starter motor because the the the, the fuel pressure is wrong and, it, and it's upside down and all that <laughs> crazy stuff right yeah and it it, you know, vapor lock because these things are running super duper hot, and then it's heat soaking yeah. while it's upside down. You, you, it, it's no guarantee that it's going to fire right back up as soon as you hit that starter, anyway. Mm. But at least you got at least some chance to go catch a couple points. And you know, as much as you got to believe that Moto Two is also a learning class, right? So you learned, to, you learned that you shouldn't have fallen off there, but hey, you got lucky because this magic button helped you get back to a few points as opposed to the no points living anyway hope jim living hope they might change the rules one it's day. not changing it they're <laughs> not changing it i'm not i'm this that's that's gonna be the hill i'm gonna go die on and that's <laughs> it's gonna be on my tombstone he wanted a starter motor on in moto too can <laughs> i just come back to the fernandez dixon tussle because please for, do for, for me it was very reminiscent of marquez and rossi a few years back at sapang if you remember now that one resulted mm. in the famous rossi kick uh, yeah. or or did his foot slip off the foot peg? Which one was it? Let's not get into that. But, you know, it was certainly a no-holds-barred kind of a deal. And fair play to Dixon. I mean, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to sort of sit back and let Fernandes get past him, despite the championship thing. And But my overarching kind of comment on it, on it was, thank God they didn't get a conduct warning from race direction. Because <laughs> that was good, close, hard racing. No quarter asked or given. A little bit of, uh, let's say, um, plastic and certainly paint sponsor exchange from one bike to the other. So tough, but but fair. And race direction on this occasion, thank God, let them get on with it unmolested. So uh, hallelujah, it can still happen. But I did worry that somebody was going to cop a penalty at some point. But anyway, there we go. That's my little uh, hill to die on over. <laughs> That's a good hill to pick. It's a good hill to be on, bud. That much I will. That much I will agree with you on. All right. So let's so, get to MotoGP, right? Main event. Yeah. Main event, and uh, quite honestly, this main event starts out with a really nice pre warm up in qualifying, <laughs> because in Q1 is Ben Yaya. That's the last place you would have thought Ben Yaya on the Ducati would be. Is in Q1. A lot of people falling off in the practice sessions, mm-hmm. though, weren't there? Yeah. Um, yeah, it I mean, was it's like, just, whoa. Sepang's yeah. a funny place. Uh, I mean, uh, you, we can never underestimate, actually. And again, I can contest to this because I've been there, as I said. 
it is so bloody hot and humid there that it has to have an effect on both people's sort of physiology and their performance. Because when you're sat on a bike that's that hot, because those things run super hot, Jim, I don't know what they run at, but you're probably into a couple of hundred degrees when the thing's fully firing. You know, and that heat with leathers, uh, you know, these guys are super, super fit, we know, but, you know, a lack of concentration would be very, very forgivable in those conditions because it is very, very hot there. And it's the humidity more than anything else. It absolutely saps your energy. And I don't know like, if moisture can change from corner to corner relatively quickly because of just the sheer amount of um, yeah, well, moisture in the air, you know. So, yeah, and I think so. I think Banyaya had gone down at an inopportune moment in FP3 and he wasn't able to get out again or get a lap. And that's kind of what dumped him into Q1. So, yeah, it's crazy. He's in there with Zarco, with Miller, with Mark, you know, both factory Ducatis. Good grief. Marquez is in there. I, you kind of expected that because obviously the cold, colder weather in Phillip Island flattered the Honda. Mm. And, you know, so Bender was in there as well as Oliveira. So it's like, man, you, that, that's a star studded bag <laughs> of people there. Now, when it came down to it, Miller was kind of leading the pack. Um, Marquez had tried to stay with Benyai at the beginning of the first run. But Benyai got away from him, and the Honda is no match for the Ducati at all. And then they sat, and there was a lot of talking with the pit wall, Gigi Delinia, and people going back and forth a little bit there in the pit box. And then Miller goes out and takes off, and Marquez and everybody else follow Miller out. And I think they used Miller as a decoy. They took him out there, knew everybody was going to tag on to the back especially Marquez. And then Benyaya went out after everybody else's say half a lap ahead, roughly. And they head out there. So it goes through uh, Benyaya. Then Miller sort of led the pack out and then sort of went wide to let everybody through. So now Marquez has no marker at all. And Benyaya is flying. So Benyaya gets through. But what's amazing is how hard Marquez pushed that Honda with no reference, and he was able to just pip Miller to get into Q2. I thought that was a pretty damn good ride from Marquez just to get in there. It shows you that he has the magic back. If you didn't think his arm was fully fit and he couldn't ride like he used to, drop that theory right now because he can. And it's it's desire, I think, is the word that comes to mind, really. Oh, yeah. You know, with everything that he's achieved and with everything that he's been through in terms of injuries... He's still absolutely willing to take it right to the edge of the envelope, you know, no matter what. And I just think it's so impressive. It is. What you like about Mark Marquez, and we've all got different opinions about him and the whole setup. And but you know, well, as we'll come on to in in the next qualifying session. I mean, again, well, off you go, Jim, because this was mesmerizing. (laughs) Really, (laughs) this is mesmerizing. What we learned in between is the fact that Quattro had fallen off in FP four. And he hurt his hand. He hurt his left hand. And the pain kept getting more intense, they said. Well, when the pain keeps getting more intense, that means you broke it. Yeah. He did. And he's supposed to have surgery on it after Valencia. So, Quattararo was going to ride hurt. And was going to ride hurt. You know, they had it taped. And it's like, okay, thank goodness it's your left and not your right. Because if it was your right... Mm -mm. Mm, i don't know i don't know what you would have done i know he would have rode i will tell you that i just don't know how good he could have rode because the brake pressure against your hand with a broken bone in there no 
not even want to thinking about what kind of pain that would be. We get into it. Pecco's on a run, looking good. Drops the bike, throws it away. <laughs> Dude, you're the. I mean, one of the things is that comes out of that is you're thinking he's so confident that he's pushing the bike that hard for what reason? He didn't. I mean, you have a Ducati, you're gonna blow past everything in a straight line, and you have two big ones that you can blow past everybody on, right? Yeah. And he still was pushing that bike that hard that he dropped it, which was I thought was interesting. Uh, Quattro was almost down at turn eight and that is a fast turn and he lost the front and the back came and he almost, almost lost that one. If he lucked out of it and the bad thing about it was is that he checked up and he never got a chance to get to that final flying lap, mm-hmm. which I don't know if it was going to matter or not, but the holy hell more you're for this action's all going on. We're all mesmerized by this. And here comes Martin flying around at like a one fifty seven. I remember when they first went there back in 99, the, the fastest lap was like a 202. Yeah. Now they're at a 157. Scary, isn't it? That's amazing. You know, in 22, I mean, granted, this is 22 years, right? They've got it to where they've, they've cut five seconds off that track lap record. And I don't think the track has changed other than reprofiling a couple of corners, as we were talking yeah. about earlier on, there hasn't been any significant changes to the track to speed things up. So, I mean, that is pure development race evolution, call it what you will. That is just pure, and that is a lot of time to save. I mean, I know it's over a longest period a period of time, as you say, Jim, but nevertheless, uh, but that lap from our team was really quite. Oh, it was beyond. It was. Else. It was beyond that. I mean, then it was like he he was in he was in at that high level. At 157 with uh, Bastianini, with Marquez, Zeki Rins, and whatnot. It was pretty crazy. It was the whole, the, the drama in that was just so good. It was like you couldn't have asked for more considering the fact that we got these guys racing for a championship here. And yeah. it was like the two protagonists crashed. Like, <laughs> wow. You know? So let us get to, let us get to the race. So Fabio has broken his middle finger. Either way you slice it. You're, most people break with at least two fingers. Rossi was always the oddball. He broke with three on his front brake. Mm-hmm. Always with three. Most people want to have two on the handlebar. That middle finger pulling a brake lever, if it was Quattro's right hand, lucky man that he broke that one. So the next question was, is rain going to arrive? People were talking about it. It was forecast. Was it going to be dry? Was it not? Don't know. But we got off to the start. Martin out front, followed by Pecco, Fashionini, Marquez, Quattrara, Morbidelli was there for a little bit. And then uh, Bastianini was threatening on Benyaya. Martin starts to pull away. He's got like seven tenths and a couple of laps. It's still Benyaya, Bastianini, Mark Marquez. Then they're dropping, they're dropping Quattrara off. Like, you know, Quattrara was six tenths down at this point. Then Marquez was losing pace because he can't ride with that fast of a pace. So Quattrara finally rolls by Mark Marquez. And then Luca Marini is going on and he's got the front front his front he actually retires from the race sorry because his front hole shot device does not disengage we've seen this before where they don't disengage and they stays in that chopper mode kind of mm. yes. for lack of a better definition way of putting it, yeah. so they can have a great start but it doesn't retract again this is a reason to get rid of I, I will give people i will give you aerodynamics on the bikes if you will take the ride height and the hole shot devices off please yeah, as soon as possible, please. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'll let you have the wings. I'll let you have that. Uh, 
Martin then crashes. He's 1.2 seconds ahead. He's gone. This guy is destined for the win, and he tosses it away. As we Why did he do it, Rich? A bit too much from him. Well, yeah. is it a con- is it a concentration thing, Rich? Is it just that's it's Malaysia? It's hotter than hell. No, because and- he do- he does this a lot. Uh, I mean, yeah. he's somebody I was listening to the other day put it very succinctly, and I, I guess you can draw a conclusion as to why Ducati made the decision that they did in terms of the works team next year. And that is that Martin is supremely fast on a Saturday and pretty much always crashes on a Sunday. Perhaps a bit harsh to say it like that, but he crashes on Sundays a lot. Bastianini's slow on a Saturday and virtually unstoppable on a Sunday. So, and it's Sunday when you get paid points. So yeah. Martin has to sort this problem out. It has, it did cost him, I would argue the, the works ride, just this niggling doubt that he's whilst he is very very fast, he's just way way too inconsistent in terms of bringing home solid points paying finishes. Because that's not just about the riders' championship at the end of the day, Jim, is it? You know, points mean prizes and big big prizes cash wise for the teams as well. So they need people banking points, particularly when you're in the works squad. So that's why Bastianini got that ride. And yep. yeah, sadly, yeah, I mean, Martin and Zarco went AWOL completely this weekend, as he has a nasty habit of doing on Sundays. At the end of the year, Zarco is always very good at the beginning of the year. And then by the end of the year, Zarco just disappears. Yeah. Now, I, mean, I, I know I, there is an argument around the fact that the Pramat riders are very much development parts testers. Oh, yeah. Largely. And Zarco's and, good at that. And Zarco is probably blighted to some extent by the fact that he doesn't have consistency in terms of his machinery from one race weekend to another. So fair enough. I mean, that's going to play its part. What to, to what degree Jorge Martin is suffering that same problem? I don't know. I just think he's he does, hasn't quite matured to that point yet where he's got that little sort of sensible chip that engages after the first few laps when he's got a bit of a gap and says, right, I can just ease it back a little bit now. Because that was a big bloody crash, Jim, wasn't it, yep. on Sunday? The bike was totaled and he was lucky not to have a nasty injury again as we've seen him go through gravel traps, you know, quite a lot through his career. And he does tend to, he's a bit of a Danny Pedroza, he tends to bash himself up a bit when he crashes. So he was lucky, as far as I know, to get away from that one relatively Unscaled, unscathed. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a shame because, I mean, he fully deserved a win. Oh, on yeah. the back of post on a 157 the day before. But that's no good if you can't bring it home. But at least his crashing gave us even more drama. Well, it, yes. I mean, there's obviously there's always a silver there's lining. Pluses and minuses. There's yeah, pluses yeah. and minuses. <laughs> with Martin down, that put Ben Yaya and Bastianini out front with a gap to Quattraro. Now, Mir had rode through the pack to get behind Quattraro. Marquez was hanging on to the back of Mir. And Bezecchi was catching the pack in front. Well... Bezecchi needs to get past Quattraro, right? And Ducati needs to get past Quattraro yeah. and pour Sim as far backwards as he possibly, possibly can. Bezecchi was just eating away at Quattraro, right? Because Bezecchi basically flew past Marquez and blew past Juan Mir. He, he just went by them as if they had dropped anchor and thrown out the chain and out the back. No, th- he was right there. Now he's trying to get through on Quattraro. He was beating at it, beating at it, beating at it. He kept the gap was like four to, was like Quattro put his for Quattro he put his head down. He knew Bezecchi was coming. Now his pit board was giving him some proper information that Bezecchi's coming. You yep. have to get on with it, pal. You got to do what you can. He pulled a four tenths gap on Bezecchi. It was crazy that I mean at that point tires are pretty much shagged because we we we're, we were halfway through. 
And he yeah. was able to pull that out with a broken finger. I'll give you that as well. But we'll just put that in. You know, he's riding through the pain. And then Bastianini got past Benyaya. Whoops, wait a second. Hold on. I don't think that was in the Ducati plan here. That was not, no. Mm-mm. Because that set off major conversations in the Ducati pits between, uh, I always forget his name, it's the guy who heads up Ducati, Chipello. Well, at various points, you, you, you had Chibati, uh, Chibati. Looking, looking stressed. You had um, yes. uh, Gigi Delinia going into furious beard stroking mode and even getting <laughs> off his chair at the back of the garage and wandering across to the pit wall, which is a exactly. very, a very that rare, never happens. very rare thing. And of course, Davide Tardozzi, who's, always looks like a cat on a hot tin roof anyway. And no doubt his heart rate was <laughs> going past 200. So yes, there was a lot of furrowed brows at this stage. Of the what race, are we Jim, going to do? <laughs> and how do we tell them that he can't win this race? Mm. How do we put that on a pit board and not look like it's team orders, but yet it's going to be team orders was how that was going down with Delinia actually getting up and going across the pit wall, you know exactly what was going to happen. Oh, and by chance, the Grassini pit box is right next to theirs. Yeah. And you're riding for that. You're riding for that bike. It's like, which shows you among all things, Bastianini is, is his own man. They uh, are going, they are going to have so much trouble trying to keep him in control with Ben Yai. It's not. Oh, Christ. Funny. Next, next year is going to oh, be my a, God. a horror story for the worst Ducati's <laughs> squad, I think, in terms of rider oh, management. Yes. Oh, but, yes. I mean, we've said this before, Jim, uh, repeatedly, which is that, you know, Bastianini works for Grassini and Grassini have sponsors to satisfy. Yeah. Uh, so it's his job to win. But it does sort of bring in to focus again, this sort of vexed question about team sport. And as we repeated, this kind of half a billion euros worth of investment that Ducati have put into the championship since they last won it at least that amount of money probably if not substantially more so you can understand why you know there's various conversations going on along pit wall at various stages of that race and god knows what will happen this weekend but oh, um i think I... you know had bezeki got past quattraro then i've absolutely no doubt that the message would have gone out plain and simple to bastion to say get into second place because that would have i mean banyard would have won the championship Mm-hmm. that result now as it turned out as you alluded to i think bez probably burnt his tire up getting up yeah. through the pack and getting up to the back of quattro so that never became did. a problem but it could easily have done well that was the problem it was like wait a second hold on we had to get we had to get bezeki past quattro for benyaya to win the championship and wait a minute as soon as we're almost there to get that bastionese is like hey i'm the faster guy yeah and it is a sort hey, of, buddy. I guess what? Piss, I can piss further in the wind than you can. Kind of a situation. Well, I think it at was like, I think it was more Bastianini going, "Hey, look, man! Blam! I just slammed my gloves down on the table. You know, like, I am going to be the man in this team, and it's not going to be you." Yeah, as short of him staying in front and then literally sort of stopping before the start finish line on the last lap. I thought you know, he was going to do that. I really uh, thought Bastianini was going to like. At the last lap, he was going to if if Bezeki had gotten by, I think on the last lap of the last term, I guarantee they would have come out there. And I was waiting for Bezeki just to turn around the bike and point like and just wave him by. <laughs> yeah. like, Here you go, buddy. And just yeah. roll off and go behind him. I'm like, whoa, that would have been like the drama that you just all oh, that would have just been all over the place. Yeah, I was yeah. wanting. I was like, if I'm if I'm Bastianini, I'd have been. I'd have done that. I I would have waited to the last turn, rolled off, and just waved by. It would have been as a blatant as i possibly could have made it but however 
you know, again, there are no radio communications. I don't know what the pit board says, but also Bastianini, or sorry, Benyaya put the bit between his teeth and got back by Bastianini. It was like, okay, wait a minute. I have to fix this problem. I'm going to fix this problem on my own. So I give I give Benyaya a lot of credit that he put his head back down and yeah, got by him. Bastianini. Fair yeah, play but, that he did. And let's do. not forget, Jim, we must sort of remember places like Le Mans earlier in the year where under pressure from Bastianini, Benyaya chucked it up the road. Yes. You, you know, it didn't have a great first half of the season for various reasons. So he's yeah. come back in the second half of this season, points-wise. It's been miraculous. But has. he has had a tendency to make mistakes under that sort of pressure. And I'm sure a lot of the angst let's call it on the on the Ducati pit wall was very much around why does Bastian need, need to be this close all the time because he wasn't letting the issue lie was he and nope. once or twice I was having those Ayagura concerns about <laughs> is this guy going to drop it and take Banyar out because that would have been I mean, oh, chaos. remember Ian only Davizioso in Argentina oh. a few years ago that lost oh, yeah. Ian only the works ride oh yeah so you could have you could have you could have seen at that moment if that happened you could have seen Tardazzi walking back in and finding pieces of paper just ripping them up and throwing them in the camera yeah, oh yeah, rip, like, rip, yeah. okay that's it we're done They've you done are not riding this bike now it's been yeah. done before been i mean it is it, it, this is kind of like that hand waving that you love about ferrari and formula one only on motorcycles because it's the same thing it's a bunch of italians who have more passion than <laughs> anyone should have about any kind of motorsport right i mean they're furiously passionate about this and they decided that they can't manage anything so it becomes arm waving and everything yeah. else and you're just like this is just good drama this is good <laughs> theater this is great for the sport if you want more hey, Dorna, if you want more people to watch you got to let this go and you're going to have it next year because the guy who's going to really put the pressure on the on the world on the potential world champion is going to be the guy who's in his garage <laughs> yeah and I, i've said at least yeah. once this year uh, on these shows jim that again in my opinion something that's been a bit lacking from the motor gp class for the last couple of seasons is a bit there's no villain a bit there's no villain yeah and and just that little bit of you know angst and and yeah who's been the villain mark marquez because we all hate him because he's winning everything everybody hates mark marquez because he can do magical things on a motorcycle so he was the villain i mean he played the villain so great because he had that smile oh it's okay we're not there yeah Mm, you know bang bang pull fast lap run away from everybody Not just that though jim it was kind of similar to rossi in the sense that yeah. when the chips were down he was coming through and if he was gonna bash you a bit True. coming through he didn't give you know he wasn't bothered about that and so that made him a bit unpopular but and it made other riders wary and upset with him and but and you need a bit of that to make these series really exciting for the fans I think yep. so. I, I'm looking forward to. I know we were joking oh. about it, but I'm really looking forward to next year with the Works Ducati boys. Bastianini is going to take on the villain role. Yeah, and the Cheshire Cow of Mark. I think, Marquez, he has. I think he already has. To be fair, oh yeah, but, he, yeah. he's taking the villain mantle and he's running with that. And Marquez is now reaching for the Cheshire Cat because all he knows is all he's got to do is have like a five percent better Honda, and he's going to win races. He'll be in anyway. there. Yeah. 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 Anyway, let's finish this off here because we could go on about this forever. Because the, <laughs> yeah. the the theater and the drama of this guys is just so good, you just can't imagine it. But Bezeki never does get by Quattrara. Quattrara put his head down. If he was saving tire because that he needed to, do, fair play to him. Great ride by him to to maintain what he had to get stand on the podium as well. Mir crashes with three laps to go, handing Marquez a place. And at at turn nine, last lap, Bastianini. Almost hits Benya. I guess it was shades of uh, 
Ayagura on Alberlino, but nope, he held it up right. With Benyaya winning, Bashanini, then Quattraro, Bezeki, Renz with a ride. We never mentioned Renz, but Renz kind of showed up there at the end, which is, I know you appreciate Rich as a Renz fan. Then yeah, it, was all about, it was all about the front, wasn't it, really, this race? Oh, so, it was, it, yeah. who cared what was happening afterwards? It was all about the front. Uh, Miller in sixth, the Marquez was seventh, ninth Bender, uh, or sorry, eighth Bender, ninth Zarco, and Alicia Spargo there in tenth. The What happens is this, what does it all do to the championship standings? Well, it puts Ben Yai on 258 points. It puts him 23 points clear of Fabio Quattraro. Quattraro has to win, and he would have to have Bastianini finish. Where's second? Where's two points at in the list for what you get here? Uh, Like 15th or something, 14th or 15th. So it's pretty much a foregone conclusion, I think, that Bastianini is or Bastianini Benyaya yeah. is going to be world champion, only to the fact that Yamaha decided to sit and not do anything with their bike. And even Jim, even if Banyai was to crash out of the race, which is a possibility because it's it going is. to be a high pressure situation, even with a twenty-three point lead, there's still so many other fast Ducatis on the track that mm-hmm. for Quattro to win that race. The the stars really have to align for Quattraro to rescue this one now. So, I, yeah. how would you like to see Alish win one here at the end? Because he's twenty three points adrift too. I mean, we I, I suppose in sort of just um, rounding out talking about the race, we ought to touch on the fact that Aprilia just have gone completely awol in the last few rounds and yeah, two computer problems where the bike didn't know what it was supposed to do has cost them dearly. And uh, you know, I think actually. One thing that I haven't heard too many people saying is is I think that Aprilia came into the season probably expecting to have a hopefully a bit of a an upturn in form with the new bike. I don't think even in their wildest dreams they would have imagined that the bike w- was going to be as good as it was and that the riders, particularly Aleish, were going to do as good a job as they did. And I think, you know, you when you win a bit, you start to get used to it and you develop the mentality of how to win and how to cope with the pressure of the expectation of winning. And I just wonder whether or not perhaps just psychologically the team aren't quite in that space yet where in that crucial second half of the season, they could just keep on pushing through, particularly with the flyaways, which are difficult for everybody. So I think they've just sort of have just dropped back a little bit. They may have maybe have dropped back a little bit in the development on the bike as well, because they're a smaller factory compared to most of the others. Um, not helped, of course, by the fact that you've got Vinales turning up on Friday saying things like, I'm fast enough to win a race, and then heading straight towards the back right from lap one and never reappearing again. So, I mean, the conundrum of Maverick Vinales continues, and that is going to be a problem for Aprilia next year if they want to do better in the team's championship and the constructors' points. You know, they need him scoring points. Now, they are going to have, obviously, Oliveira and uh, Raul Fernandez on the RNF bikes. Uh, Aprilia's next year so that's going to help them in terms of data and development and stuff but nevertheless on the works bikes they they need both of their guys up front consistently so yeah I mean Aprilia's been a bit of a disappointment but I think we can let them off a little bit on the basis that they didn't expect to be in the position of fighting for any championships and to have got where they got to this year has been pretty stupendous really I think well it's that way because I can give you a Formula 1 example Schumacher loves Lee's Benetton from 95, goes to Ferrari 96. Ferrari had no business winning anything. Mm. Schumacher willed them onto a victory in her or in Barcelona, I think, in the wet. In the wet, yeah. Right? 
And it took them until night. It took them until basically Ross Braun showed up. I think a year after. I think it wasn't until '97 that Ross Braun shows up. Mm-hmm. And it took Ross a year to teach the team how to win. And they finally started to win in '98. And they were just a little bit behind McLaren. They were really close in '99. Schumacher breaks his leg at Silverstone, you know. And then 2000, and we wind up on dominance, right? So yes, yeah. the team yeah. is not expecting to win. A team has to know how to win as much as a rider needs to know how to win. So we'll leave it there. So that's, I'd say we leave that Malaysia thing there. Now let's talk about what's going to happen or we think is going to happen in Valencia in there. So your thoughts first. Are we going Moto3, Moto2? I don't care, whatever you want, whatever you want to do. Okay, Moto3, I mean, you can never predict who's going to do what. Well, before I talk about this, I did look at the weather forecast earlier and it looks like everybody's dodging a bullet on this one because where we thought it was potentially going to be quite nasty currently the forecast is for it to be dry all three days quite sunny and temperatures kind of in the low to mid 20s so those are pretty optimal conditions for anybody to race in um and it's only a few days away now so i think that forecast is probably fairly accurate um so not wet not cold (laughs) uh, as it could easily be at this time of year in valencia but luckily they're going to dodge that particular bullet so Moto3, I mean, you've got the champ, Guevara, last Moto3 race. You've got some big names like Garcia, Foggia, McPhee, last races in the category, probably, definitely for McPhee. So there's a lot of people with a reason to want to go out with a win, but I'd like to see Onchu do it. <laughs> that, I was gonna, I have Onchu as my pick. Onchu's going to get one, finally. I think he's... At the same place as brother one. good at Valencia, know. yeah, so historically, but he had a torrid round in malaysia don't know what went wrong for him there so i'm not even going to try to predict a winner in moto three because i just think it's impossible however i'll, I'll go arbelino in moto two because i just think he's on a roll now and okay. he's very very quick i agree with you that very probably think, there i think fernandez you know he's got a bit of a points advantage now to rest back on he's at home in spaniard and I, I think psychologically, Agura might carry what he, what happened in Sepang into this weekend, and it might just play play with him a little bit. I mean, obviously, all of this is on the basis that you never know if somebody's going to have a crash and take somebody else out, and there's a skittling effect. You never know in racing any of these things could happen. But I'd say I would say on balance, Arbelino for the win. Fernandez probably will scrape the points that he needs. Or he will definitely ride a sensible race and get the position and the points that he needs. All things being equal. And then in MotoGP, I think Bastianini will win. I think he will want to go out of the Grassini squad with a win. Bagna is going to play it pretty safe, I expect, uh, particularly if the weather's good. I don't think he needs to worry too much. But I can see, I could kind of see a Bagna, Quattro, Bastianini podium. I think Quattro will be good. Uh, but again, I mean, MotoGP, I mean, you got Suzuki, final round ever, as far as we know, for that team and for that mark. So, Marquez, I mean, you just never know, do you? And Valencia's probably, I don't know, in terms of anti-clockwise def- deficiencies of that bike, whether, I mean, Valencia's a bit of a go-kart track, really. I don't really understand why we go there, and particularly not for the final round of the season. I just think it's absurd. But... And we're not going there, we'll go there next year, but we're not going to Aragon. I know, yeah. Wow. Uh, anyway, yeah. so. And that's another guess... thing in the off-season gym that we'll have to do. Oh, is yeah, our, we're taking that our, one. Our dream yeah. calendar. Yeah. <laughs> with venues but anyway yeah. oh yeah, yeah. So that, that's my prediction so over to you all right so i'll agree with you with moto three i think it's too crazy to pick i do think Anchu's due he's he's been due i think there's some kind of symmetry there 
uh, the stars aligning because that's where his brother won on his debut. I think he's going to get a win there. I think that's what's going to happen. I just think he's got nothing to lose at this point, and I can see the Gas Gas Boys rounding out the podium. Yeah, because the Honda's not any good on that kind of a track at all. Mm-hmm. So done. Moto two. I'm going to take a different road than you. I think Agura, since it's warm and dry, I think Agura either wins or finishes second to Arbolino because Arbolino is on a roll. I think Fernandez does not, how can I put it, rides too safe and he's going to cause himself a problem in qualifying. That's going to put him much further back than what Agura is going to. A bit like Remy Gardner last year. Yeah, it's just one of those things. It's like, just, I don't think it's like a pressure thing. It's just, he's just going to not have the setup. Something's not going to happen. And I, and I just feel, I just feel like a girl is destined for this. I, I, I can't explain it. What, to win than, the championship? So, yes. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. I do. Hmm. To me, Ayagura is cool, calm, and collected. And I really think he's going to put this one behind him and just go ride. I think he's more dangerous when he can ride free. He has nothing to lose at this point. And if you kind of remember in the, in the championship decider at, at Puerto Mayo with Acosta, Ayagura was right there in that whole mix because he was riding free because he had nothing to lose. I think he's in the same boat. Yeah, he has nothing I mean, to lose. He's going back to Moto2 again. I just think there's going to be some sort of circumstances that you just aren't ready to predict happening. And it could be as crazy as the fact that Agura makes a lunge at the last turn and he puts it on on Fernandez and he knocked and they they fall. They cra- he crashes, and it, that's enough places to go backwards in. And yeah. I'll rant about not having a starter motor again. But so it's just one of those things. So given the context of this weekend and the relative positions of Ayagura and Fernandez in the points, with Fernandez being ahead by what was it nine and a half? Where, where do half. you come down on better to be the hunter or the hunted? I mean, what's your view on that? Oh, I say be I say be the hunter. Be the hunter. Because what do you got to lose? Hey, I was behind. I went for it. You walk out of there with a clean conscience. There's there's, there's no reason not to be that way. If the, you're the hunter, it, it's going to affect you. you you're you're going to think about it subconsciously on some level. Because the, the problem is you may never, ever, ever be this close to a world championship again. Think about a world championship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, about as exclusive a club as it gets. It is an exclusive club, right? I I, just be the hunter just because it's free. You're free. You can ride. You don't care. My only counter to that is, is, you know, I look at Augusto Fernandez and he's been in the category for quite a while. He's quite a sensible thinking rider as well as being very, very fast, of course, as well. So I, yeah, well, we're going to find out pretty soon, aren't we? So it'll be interesting to see who, who manages Sunday the best or, or the weekend right. the best. I could be completely off my rocker again. I feel in my gut Agura's got this. I don't know what's going to happen. The racing gods are going to shine on him and they're not going to shine on on Fernandez. And I yeah. can be totally wrong. It's just what I feel. You yeah. Know? In, terms of the, now, in terms of the team. podium, Jim, I, uh, we, we ought to mention Alonso Lopez as well because, I mean, what a, what a year he's had since he rocked oh, up. Yeah. So um, you can't rule him out at home either. I think he's the third guy on the podium. I think Arbolino, Aguro, and him are on the podium in some order. Mm-hmm. Take your pick. And yeah. I think Fernandez is cruising where he needs to be. Again, like you said earlier, to, to use your terminology, the permutations of this one in terms oh, of yeah, it's going to be hideous because they're so close. But yeah. um, 
But for that, like you say, I mean, Fernandez is definitely going to have to be careful not to be too conservative. Otherwise, you can very quickly, given how tight this is going to be, he could very quickly find himself, you know, in a losing position. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Hmm. It's, uh, it's just it's one of those things. I just, you know, it is what it is. Now, <laughs> the MotoGP race, I think it's a foregone conclusion that Ben Yaya wins this title, despite the best efforts of Quattararo. Quattararo, he's got to ride with that broken finger. He's not getting surgery on it until after. So he's got to deal with it. It's going to feel better in these two weeks that he's had off some painkillers and stuff. He'll be okay. The Yamaha probably works there. I wouldn't put it past Quattararo to win the race. It's a, it's a track that he could do well on if he qualifies well and is on the front row, gets a whole shot. I don't think you're beating Quattararo. Just, mm. I don't see that happening. But, but recent history is recent the, history the says dominated track. Yeah. This I is know, the problem. Yes. Yeah. It's the problem. So, in all, I, I, I wouldn't put it past Quattro to win. Let's me. I guess I should maybe phrase it that way. Yeah, I, I think Bastianini. I, I think Bastianini does win, but I wouldn't put it past Quattro to not be a second, third. Benyai is gonna Benyai is gonna be smart, and Ben Benyai is basically wherever Quattro is. Benyai is gonna be shadowing him the whole time. I would look. I would shadow him in qualifying. We know Quattro likes to be like the last guy out. On the on the uh, of the qualifying sessions and whatnot, right? I waited out with him until you go. I'm not going, pal. And I would just ride. I would. I would ride behind him the whole time. Good old fashioned Rossi mind games. <laughs> Why not? You know, because then it's like you're putting the pressure on him as the hunter, and you have a superior motorcycle in every way, shape, and form. And you got a whole bunch of other people who are going to move over for you if necessary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Do I think not, that's you know, that's the, the other point. part of it, right? That that is key. Uh, you know, Quattraro, as has been the case all year, has had no help from any other Yamahas. Now, not to suggest that Banya is going to win because of all the other Ducatis helping him, but 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 if the chips are down on Sunday, he's got a whole host of people that can help him out. So, I mean, that yeah, that's got to count as well. Yeah, Psycholog- psychologically, in terms of approach and so on. I wouldn't put it past Marquez showing up on the podium either or being mm. real close to it. Yeah. Yeah. Just sheer will of like, I'm going to make it do it. And you're going to be in a cooler condition than what Sepang was. So the bike should theoretically work better. It's an anti-clockwise circuit. You know how Marquez is on those things. So I wouldn't put it past Marquez. I wouldn't put it past Marquez to be on pole. <laughs> I mean, th- happily, Modern day modern GP is is so competitive. I mean, we shouldn't rule out the outlier of you know two highly motivated oh. Suzuki riders for that matter. Of course, with on a bike that will work well in Valencia without a question in good conditions weather wise, which it looks like it's going to be. Yep. So you could easily see Rins, you know, popping up on the podium. Maybe you wouldn't have said that before Philip Island, but that is going to have put some wind in his sails. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Marini's having a great year. Bezeki's had a great year. Um, Martin yeah. will do really well until he chucks it up the road. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Remy Gardner might want to go out on a bit of. I'm not suggesting he's going to be on the podium, but it's his last MotoGP race for the time being. Hopefully not forever. But I you know, there's a lot of people with good reasons. <laughs> no, I honestly can't either. Unfortunately, it's, I'm sorry. I think he's talented. He, I, I hope he goes the World Superbike and just shows everybody what he's really made of. Which I'm like, sure he will do, yeah. But anyway, that's a story for another day, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah there's a day, but yes. very hard to predict, I think, is the outcome of this discussion, isn't it? In, mo- in yeah. all of the classes, but particularly MotoGP. Yeah, I think we know, I think we know Benyaya's champion. I think we all have that figured out. Now, if 
Quattro was not riding hurt, I think you could maybe say, well, you know, maybe, you know, but because mm -mm. even Vinaya, even if they tied, Vinaya takes it on, takes it on count back of race wins. Yeah. So it's going to no, be a I story. Mean, with a 23 point lead, it's, it's really hard to envisage any scenario in which he doesn't win the championship, even if he has a, you know, a bad weekend or some disaster in the race. There's just too many other people in his camp. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah. And Quattro has to have a completely flawless weekend as well, a track which historically doesn't suit the Yamaha. That's true. Well, I think certainly last... not in, re in recent years, anyway. I mean, Lorenzo is probably the last Yamaha to win. I think he was the last one in 2015, right? Right. That sounds about right. Yeah. And it's been pretty Ducati dominated ever since then, I yeah. think. Uh, probably Marcus has so. won a race or two. But yeah, doesn't bode well quattro unfortunately and he does, certainly deserves the championship again because i mean he's done things on that bike that it didn't really deserve the results that he's he's given it really but um you can only you can only spread the butter so thin on a piece of bread before you know i the fascinating thing to me is actually going to be testing after the race yeah on that tuesday on the tuesday because we know i want to see how yamaha's new motor goes at valencia I want to see what Honda's pulled out of the pulled out for Marquez to go ride. And, you know, I just, the thought of Bastianini, Benyaya, Marquez, and Quattraro all beating the crap out of each other all year long next year is a tantalizing thing that I personally want to see. Yeah. I don't care who wins. I don't care who wins the championship at that point next year. Just if those four guys are week in, week out battling for the podium, going to be fabulous. That's season. great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think that does it for the show, Rich. I think so. I think, that, I think we're done here. Hey, guys, if you want to get in contact with us, just email us, motopod at motopodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at motorgv, and you are just simply Richard Jowett on both social media platforms, both platforms as well. Indeed, yeah. I will so be doing go, my go. best to watch the races, Jim. Uh, I'm not That's sure fun. if you mentioned, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm heading over to your side of the water uh, this weekend, so I'm hoping my Dawner feed will work okay on my laptop. Uh, when I'm sat in the hotel on my lonesome, it should do, shouldn't it? But you have the you have the subscription, right? Yeah, you're fine. Got it to look forward to this weekend. So, um, not sure when we'll be, catch up again because I'd say I'm I'm in the states for a week, but um, it's all right. we'll, we'll figure we'll, it out. We'll figure it out one way or another. But... Hey, we can go really late one night, so it doesn't really matter because you're in my world now. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> be fine. Anyway, folks, enjoy. Tune in because it's going to be fantastic. Looking Cheers. Forward to it. Cheers, everyone.